0: Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, here to guide you through worlds of fantasy and wonder. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 19 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane is on the trail of a band of killers. Someone is taking people right off the street, all over Metamore, and draining their blood in some kind of black magic ritual. It's not clear what purpose these rituals are intended to serve, but there are two likely possibilities. Either the killers are performing the same ritual spell over and over again, or they are flywheeling, storing up mana for a single spell of massive, reality-warping power. Whatever they might have in mind for such a spell, it can't be anything good. Kate and her allies have identified two distinct categories among the killers' victims. Most of the people were taken and killed quickly— the bodies turning up before they were even reported missing. Five of the victims, however, went missing for weeks, and these so-called red files were all subjected to deprivation and torture before they died. Though there is nothing obvious to tie these five people together, the way they were treated suggests that their deaths served a different purpose for whoever is behind the attacks. Kate wants to go deeper into investigating the case— but she's hit a roadblock in the form of her old police captain, Joe Montgomery. Last night, the cap showed up at her apartment, where he confronted her with the fact that Internal Affairs has been monitoring her recent activities. Kate is supposed to be on administrative leave, and that means that for right now, she is not police. If she keeps trying to do police work while she's suspended, she could end up sinking her whole career. To make matters worse, Montgomery knows that Kate went behind his back to accept a transfer offer from Captain Shaw, the head of the elite Special Investigations Division. That transfer hasn't been finalized yet, but it seems clear that Kate's going to be back in the field before Montgomery believes she is ready. Montgomery orders Kate to lay off the case until she's officially reinstated, and to take the files she has collected to Captain Shaw first thing on Monday morning. Otherwise, internal affairs could accuse her of stealing records from police custody. Trapped between her need to do something and the captain's orders, Kate finds herself facing a long, slow Sunday, with only herself for company, and no idea what to do next. The Lost and the Least a Novel of Metamorph City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 19 The hours passed in a haze. Kate showered, dressed, ate, tried to read, tried to watch television, ate again, drifted aimlessly through WorldNet sites. Nothing captured her attention. She thought about going back to the missing persons database to continue her research, but now that she knew Internal Affairs was monitoring her access, that didn't seem like a smart decision. Eventually, she decided to go back through the files Michael had recovered, in the hope that some new leads would reveal themselves. She started with the red files, since those were the victims she had the most information about. She grabbed a notepad and a pen, and started writing details about their lives that might be important, either to how they had been kidnapped, or why they had been targeted. The victims seemed as unalike as a group of people in Metamore could be. Their professions, their ages, their social classes, the groups they affiliated with—all different— What the hell is it about these people that makes them special? There was no clear answer, and after a while, Kate's mind started wandering. She stopped taking notes and doodled in the margins of her paper. Stars with different numbers of points, overlapping circles, spirals. She drew a wavy line down the side of the page, then braided it with another line, making a kind of spiral staircase. She drew an equilateral triangle and subdivided it into smaller and smaller triangles. Wait a minute. Kate paused, her pen hovering over the paper. She looked back at the spiral staircase, an old memory pinging in the back of her mind. She went over to her bookshelves, dug through the accumulated detritus around them, and found her college textbooks. She pulled out the book titled Introductory Genetics. The DNA double helix on the cover looked just like her doodle. She picked up her phone and called Morgan. The call went to voicemail, not surprising, since it was the middle of the day. "'Hey, it's me,' she said. "'I just had a thought about these red files. What if they're being targeted for some genetic reason? Like, some gene that makes them valuable for whatever spell the bad guys are trying to do? Does that make sense?' "'I'd ask David, but he's still out of contact.' Anyway, call me back and let me know if I'm going crazy. Okay, bye. She put the phone away and went back to the files. The victims in the buff-colored files didn't seem to have much more in common than the red ones, except that they were all street rats. Whoever was behind the killings, they were operating all over the city. It was a lucky break that Kate was going to be working with Special Investigations soon. They would need SID's broad jurisdiction if they were ever going to solve this case. Kate looked at the files until she started to go cross-eyed, then lay down for a nap. She was awakened by her phone ringing. Not the house phone, where she'd called Morgan, but the one that belonged to Kathleen Kittredge. She clambered out of bed, found the phone before it went to voicemail, and answered without looking at the caller ID. Kittredge Investigations Hello, Miss Kittredge. It's Lyle Delane. A sick feeling churned in Kate's stomach. She abruptly realized that she had been subconsciously putting off this conversation all day. Hey, Lyle. I'm sorry, I meant to call you. But I was too chicken shit to do it. Oh? Have you found something then, ma'am? Kate rubbed the bridge of her nose. Her headache was starting to twinge again. I'm afraid so. The police found Mrs. Roberts. She... Kate heard a short, choked sound from the other end of the line. Is she dead? I'm afraid so. It... There was nothing you could have done. Based on what the medical examiner showed me, she was killed within hours of being taken. I... I see. Lyle was trying hard to keep it together, but Kate could hear the emotion in his voice. Do you know why, ma'am? Not yet, Kate said, but I can tell you this much. She wasn't the only one. You put me on the trail of something big here, Lyle. I'm going to run it down, find out who these bastards are, and make them pay for it. You have my word on that. I... Thank you, ma'am. If it helps somebody else, then... Then I'm glad I called you. He hesitated. Has her family been notified? Um, no, I don't think so. The police haven't formally identified her. Do you have time to go down to the morgue tomorrow? I'll make time, ma'am, Lyle said. Thank you again. If if there's anything I can do to help, I'll let you know, Kate promised. I'm sorry, Lyle. I really am. Y- yes, ma'am, Lyle said, his voice thick with tears. Goodbye. He rang off. Kate dropped the phone on her nightstand and fell limply into bed. She wasn't sure if she slept or not, but the sunlight had shifted noticeably when the phone rang again. This time, she remembered to check the caller ID. Hey, calendar girl. Kitty cat? Callie sounded a lot less chipper than her usual self. I'm supposed to be sleeping, but I keep thinking about this case. Do we have any new intel yet? Kate sat up in bed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, actually we do. She filled in Callie on the discoveries from last night. The two categories of victims, the evidence of death magic, and her theory that the bad guys were flywheeling some kind of powerful arcane ritual. That doesn't sound good, Callie said. No kidding. You uncover anything on your end? It looks like it, yeah. You know my mentor, Silas Kenning? Kate blinked. Uh, yeah. People on the street had mentioned Silas a number of times during her investigations, with a mixture of reverence and fear. She didn't know much about him, except that he was a retired runner who had outlived all his enemies and now worked as a security consultant. The street rats who spoke of him seemed to ascribe to him godlike levels of knowledge and wisdom. Silas found evidence of some kind of shadow group going after Syndicate Holdings, Callie said. Whoever they are, they've got a lot of money and some top-shelf tech. If somebody's planning a big, dangerous, reality-warping spell, it looks like they might have the resources to pull it off. Wow. Kate stared at the wall, thinking, I wonder if these people in the Red Files are somehow related to leaders in the Syndicate. What, you mean before they were vampires? Exactly. What if somebody's trying to do a bloodline curse to take out Malcolm Ardvalos and his top lieutenants? I don't know, maybe, Callie said. I've never worked with curses, have you? No, but I know a little about how they work. Kate thought of her double helix doodle again. You would need someone in a direct line of descent, a distant cousin isn't enough. If Malcolm had children before he was turned, and one of those people still has descendants, you'd need a shit-ton of power to run the curse back up the line that many generations, but yeah, I think it could be done. Okay, Callie said. Assuming you're right, how do you test something like that? Even if you could get Malcolm to talk about his family tree, what makes you think he even knows who all his descendants are? A slow grin spread across Kate's face. I don't need him to tell me. I just have to go to the library. The Matthias Genealogical Library was one of the crowning achievements of Metamore's most powerful noble house. A freestanding building located in Glen Avery, a wealthy residential community on the western edge of the city, the library was a sprawling structure that covered more than a square kilometer of space. Glen Avery's building codes forbade building any structure taller than four stories, a protection for the ancient trees that were the town's most distinguishing feature. But Clan Matthias had made the most of the available space. Neoclassical columns, broad marble staircases, and elaborate frescoes and friezes made the library feel like something out of old Pyralis. Kate had only visited the library once before, when she was a freshman in university and needed to complete a research project for history class. Ascending the massive steps of the building now, she was filled with the same sensation of awe that she'd had all those years ago. But the genealogical library wasn't just impressive because of the way it looked, or how much it had cost to build. The real achievement was inside. Over the centuries since its founding, the library had meticulously tracked the bloodlines and relationships of literally billions of people. Starting with the residents of Metamore Keep itself, the librarians had expanded outward to cover first the entire kingdom of Metamore, then the nearby Midlands, And finally, every province of the empire. This titanic effort was not just about the pride of a noble house or defending some ideal of highborn purity. For Clan Matthias and all of the other houses who carried the Theriamorph curse, it was a matter of survival. The great houses proudly wore the forms that the ancient curse had given their heroic ancestors Matthias the rat, Brightleaf the fox, Hassan the horse. Barnhart the Badger. But in the generations after the curse was laid, the houses tragically discovered that there were consequences to repeatedly breeding inside one's template species. Four or five generations down the line, children would be born with developmental disabilities, their bodies and minds more animal than human. A sixth-generation child would not be recognizably human at all. To protect against this, each of the noble houses maintained a breeding program, arranging some marriages and forbidding others, so that their vitality and humanity would be preserved. The librarians tracked the expressions of the curse in every generation, monitoring its accumulated effects. Along the way, they also recorded other information—heritable diseases, marriages to elves or other non-humans, and distinctive traits like maitri, albinism, or birth defects. With the discovery of DNA and the laws of genetics, the librarians began to collect tissue samples. In the last 20 years, these samples had begun to be analyzed with genetic sequencing, revealing even more information. The librarians kept everything, and were constantly working on more sophisticated ways of organizing, cross-referencing, and exploring the enormous trove of data they had gathered. The library was only open until six on Sundays, but that still gave Kate a couple of hours to work by the time she arrived. She checked in at the front desk, where one of the librarians, a little ratmorph woman in a cornflower blue dress, took a scan of her fingerprints and issued her a visitor's pass. "'How can we help you today, Miss Catane?' she asked. Kate raised her stack of red folders. "'I'm trying to find out if these people were targets of a bloodline curse.' Is there a way I can look up their family trees and see who they're related to? The Rat Woman's dark eyes went wide at the mention of a curse, and all her whiskers twitched at once. Oh, my, she breathed. That's not the sort of request we get often. I think we're all grateful for that, Kate said. Can we do it? Most likely, yes. How far back are you looking to search? Kate frowned she didn't actually know how old Malcolm Ardvalos was. His public records claimed that he was in his late fifties, but that was transparently a lie. Anyone who bothered to dig through old newspaper reports and archival photographs would find the same man moving in the circles of power for more than two hundred years. Malcolm claimed that these were his ancestors, that he had inherited his considerable wealth from his father and his grandfather before him, but the police knew it was only an elaborate shell game to maintain the illusion of mortality. How long he had been playing this game no one could guess, though it certainly predated the invention of photography. "'What if I wanted to go back, say, three or four hundred years?' Kate asked. The librarian chittered a laugh. "'I'd wish you good luck, Miss Katane. You'd be looking at a family tree of more than two thousand ancestors, and that's just for one person.' Kate winced. Oof. What if I had one specific ancestor that I thought might have been the target of the curse? Would it be easier to trace a link between that person and one of the victims? The little woman's face brightened. Oh, yes. That's terribly easy. Follow me. She led Kate to a computer terminal, one of hundreds in the public section of the library. She sat down at the terminal and selected a program from the menu titled Ancestor Trace. This is one of our most popular programs, the librarian said. People want to know how they're related to the great heroes of Metamore." A dialog box popped up on the screen, with two columns of fields for data entry, entitled Ancestor and Descendant. Each side had blanks for first, middle, and last names, name suffixes, Clan or house names, titles, birth dates, imperial identification numbers, and other distinguishing features. You just enter whatever information you have available. The librarian clicked over to the descendant side and entered Rosalind Barely Matthias in the name fields. That's me, she confided. Rosalind added her birth date and ID number, then clicked over to the ancestor side. She entered Charles Matthias put a one in the suffix box, then added the title, Rat of Might. I can't believe that name stuck, Kate muttered. Rosalind tittered. It is a bit dramatic, isn't it? But it's useful in this case. There have been over 50,000 Charles Matthiases in the generations since. I guess that's what happens when you save the world, Kate said. Rosalind clicked the button at the bottom of the dialogue box, which said, Trace a message window popped up, Trace in Progress, along with a progress bar, which slowly filled from left to right. The further back you're looking, the longer it takes, Rosalind said. It's a lot faster than it used to be, though. If we'd tried this when I first started working here, we would have had to start the search and then go out for dinner. In about two minutes, the search was complete, and a massive family tree popped up on screen with countless small white boxes arranged in rows and connected by lines. The top row held a single box labeled Charles Matthias. The bottom row also had one box, labeled Rosalind B. Matthias. In between, the connections spread out, joined together, and split again countless times, like forks in a river. A sidebar listed the statistical results of the search. As you can see here... There are thirty-five generations between me and Charles I, Rosalind said. I'm related to him through four hundred and seventeen different lines of descent. The closest of these was a marriage between second cousins here. The most distant was between twelfth cousins. That happened six times. She pointed out several linkages between widely separated boxes in the same generation. Kate whistled. That, um... Seems like a lot of relatives getting married to each other. Rosalind's muzzle curled up in a smile. Not for thirty-five generations. If I were only related to Charles I through one line of descent, and the same were true of all my other ancestors, then I'd have more than thirty-four billion relatives, just in that one generation. There haven't been thirty-four billion humans on Earth in its entire history, Miskatane. We're all more inbred than we'd like to think we are. The librarian clicked back to the ancestor trace window and clicked in the descendant section again. Here, you try it. She slid off the seat and gestured for Kate to take it. Obediently, Kate entered her own name, Catherine Melissa Catane, as well as her ID number and birthdate. Ah, happy related birthday, Rosalind said. Thanks, Kate said, and clicked the trace button. What happens if I'm not related to Charles I? An error message will pop up to say that a trace couldn't be found, Rosalind said. That doesn't mean you aren't related to that person, necessarily, but we don't have the records to prove it. After a few minutes, a new family tree popped up. Kate didn't have nearly as many connections to Charles I as Rosalind did, but even she had more than twenty lines of descent that led back to the ancient hero. I guess I can call you cousin, Rosalind said, grinning. I guess you Mathiases get around, Kate said, smirking back at her. Is there anything else I should know? Certainly. If you double-click on one of those boxes, you can bring up that person's family tree, with ancestors, mates, and descendants. She opened the box for one of Kate's great-great-grandfathers. A new window popped up, showing the man's direct relations for four generations in each direction, all the way down to Kate herself. The next box up read Jacob N. Valenti, her biological father, a man she had no memory of. The box above that read Mariel Y. Starson. Starson, Kate thought, I'm related to Janus. By the Prophet, this computer knows more about me than I do. Kate was suddenly reminded of that strange moment of communion she'd had with a lemisell, the holy sort of metamorph. The blade knows its own. Janus had said. Kate had figured that a must be sensing some long-distant connection between her and the Lightbringers, something hundreds or thousands of years back in her ancestry. Instead, she apparently had a starson for a grandmother. "'Can this show me how two people currently alive are related to each other?' Kate asked. "'That was the next thing I was going to show you,' Rosalind said, sounding pleased." She pulled up the main menu again and clicked a button that said Last Common Ancestor. Another dialog box came up, very similar to the one for the Ancestor Trace, but in this case the two sides of the screen were simply labeled Subject Number One and Subject Number Two. This is an important tool for the Noble Houses, Rosalind said. If a potential partner is too closely related, we can find out before things progress too much romantically. Kate entered her own information on the left side, and Janus Starson on the right side. She clicked the trace button. This time a message box popped up, listing several Janus Starson's to choose from. Kate knew Janus was in his late thirties, so she chose the only one with a birth date in the right range. Janus A. Starson, born July 1st, 1962. I'll have to send him a card, she thought. A family tree popped up within a few seconds. Apparently, Mariel Starson had been the second cousin of Janus's grandmother on his father's side. Kate and Janus's last common ancestors were Marielle's great-grandparents. So Janus and I are... fourth cousins, Kate thought, pausing a moment to do the generational math. I wonder if he knows. Rosalind was looking over her shoulder. Janus Starson... Isn't he that Lightbringer commander who killed Santa Claus a couple of years ago? It was all over the news. Santa's a fairy lord, Kate said. You can't actually kill him. He just reforms next year. Even so, that was awful, Rosalind said. The poor children, they cried for days. They thought you was gone forever. Kate blushed, feeling oddly defensive of Janus. Is that because I just discovered we're related? She wondered. No, it's probably because he saved my life. Anyway, she said, I think I have everything I need to do my research now. Thank you very much for the help. Rosalind bowed. Happy to be of service, dear. If you need anything else, don't hesitate to ask. The Rat Woman went back to her desk, leaving Kate alone with the terminal in her stack of files. She was about to get to work investigating the first subject, but she hesitated as she hovered over the Close button on her and Janus's shared family tree. After a moment's thought, she clicked the Export button and saved a copy of the tree to the desktop. Then she opened up her personal family tree, set it to display the last seven generations, and saved that as well. She wasn't entirely sure what she was going to do with the information, but it felt important to have it handy. The discovery of such a recent connection between her and Janus reminded her that there was a lot she didn't know about herself and where she came from. As much as Sam Katane felt like her father—no, as much as he was her father—that was only part of the story. As the Matthiases and the other noble houses had discovered, your blood heritage affected you, whether you were aware of it or not. And if Kate's blood heritage was going to do things like make an ancient, semi-sentient, elvish sword take an interest in her personally, then it was probably a good idea to learn more about it. Kate opened up an email client, attached the two family tree files to a message, and then sent a copy to herself. She'd figure out what it all meant later. Switching back to the main menu, she opened the first red file and got to work. And that's the end of chapter 19. What does Kate find out in her research, and what does it mean for the kidnapping victims? Find out next time, when Kate recruits Morgan to help her make sense of it all. Plus, Evan Lindy goes looking for answers of his own. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,832 words this week, over the course of 3.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 809 words per hour. I wrote on four out of seven days this week. After more than a month of no new fiction writing, this week I finally hit on a story idea I was excited about. I've started working on a new story that I'm calling Homecoming. It's sort of a Thanksgiving-themed story, starring John and Kate, and it takes place several months after the events of The Lost and the Least. I'm excited about this story because it's a chance for me to meet Kate's parents, as Kate brings John back to the suburbs for a big holiday dinner. Naturally, there are complications. I wrote about 900 words on the text of the story, and did roughly another thousand words of story planning, and I can't wait to get deeper into it next week. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to Jay! We also have the finished version of Carol Foote's first piece of bonus art, for part one of To Walk in Shadow. Carol described this piece to me as The Devil Wears Armani and Everyone is Uncomfortable. I really like it, and I think you will too. And if that's not enough for you, our $3 patrons and higher also get a preview of Ben Clifford's next piece, which features Morgan and Ava from The Lost and the Least. If you want to take part in the fun, head on over to patreon.com slash authorchrislester and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Several of you wrote in this week with words of encouragement, which I really appreciate after the struggles I've had lately. Eric thanked me for the extra information I shared about Silas, and for answering Mark's question about necromancy in episode 160. He said, It reminds me of a feedback from way back in I think Making the Cut, where someone brought up Wizard of Oz parallels, and you took a moment to retell Wizard of Oz as it would have been in the world of Metamorph. It really felt like you just read us a synopsis of a real story. Those are some real gems of fan interaction, and I really appreciate it. Unquote. Jason G. shared a story about how an increase in responsibilities at his own work had sapped his energy to write. He said, I spent a long time beating myself up for not writing. But I realized that there were only so many hours in the day, and so much energy in my spirit. I had to prioritize. Family first, and as much as I don't like it, job second. Would I rather be a full-time writer? Yes. Can I afford it right now? No. So, in order to take care of the first priority, I needed to also take care of the second. Writing is important, but it was a third priority during this time. With everything else that was going on, there was no sense in my beating myself up over the fact that my writing was suffering. Neither should you, in my opinion. We don't have to like it, but it is the reality. I don't know if I'll make my deadline. I'll still try. If not, I'll do the same thing that I did last year forgive myself, and try again. I'll keep trying until I get it done." Rick said this, Every creative person I've ever met occasionally gets to a point where their day job and other life events interfere with their ability to create. In your case, it sounds like you've hit your limit of available free time. It's okay. You can step back, heal, find your center, find a balance, and continue in whatever capacity you're able. I won't love you or your work any less. Unquote. And Marilee, who's a local listener here in Madison, broke out the full-bore Midwestern support network by inviting me and my wife to come over for dinner. I am hugely grateful to all of you who took the time to share these words and offerings of strength, encouragement, and support. And thanks, too, to all of you who continue to tune in, week after week, to hear my stories. You all are the best fans a writer could ask for. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.